unmute myself is what we're going to do. We're going to be continuing our study in Judges this morning. Um, as I was preparing for this week's message, I realized that there's, there's some uh, classical tales uh, that kind of are similar to what we're going to read this morning. There's this uh, tale... Uh, tale is... No, this is the wrong story. Uh, tale is old as time. No, that's not, not, not the right story this morning. Uh, there, there's a classic tale of a, of a young woman whose mother dies and the father remarries. Only later for the father to die and the daughter being left with a wicked stepmother and stepsisters, right? Cinderella. She was loved much by her father, but after he passed away, Cinderella's life changed for the worse. After dad was out of the picture, she became more like a servant and a slave to the stepmother and the sisters in her own house, nonetheless. And anyone who's watched the movie or read the, the tale knows that just how awful this stepmother and stepsisters were to Cinderella. Where she had once had a life of being loved and taken care of with, with a promise of a future of great things ahead. In a moment, were completely ripped away from her and gone. Now, you're probably familiar with the rest of the tale, but we're not going to talk about the rest of the tale. We're just going to talk about and focus on that part right there about how she had her life ahead of her, had uh, this blessing of a life with her father in the picture, and then when father dies, everything changes. Last week, we saw a different, I just turned it off, a different Gideon. We saw a different side of Gideon. We saw that even though he conquered Midian, the oppressors that God had raised for Israel for their apostasy, even though he conquered Midian, he did so out of vengeance and without the Lord's direction in his own might. And ultimately, we see that even though he's the savior of Israel, the judge that God raised, he also leads Israel into sinning against God as well by setting up the ephod and, and the whole of Israel whoring after it, as the scripture says. This morning, we're going to learn about how this sin led to Gideon's family dysfunction. Abimelech is one of Gideon's sons who, like Cinderella, benefited from a certain kind of life while dad... Gideon was alive, but everything changes after Gideon dies. So hopefully you've, the stage is now set. Hopefully you've got your Bible open to Judges. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship you, to gather in your name and to worship you through our singing, through our giving, through our koinonia, our, our fellowship together, Lord, and, and now through the, the teaching and, and receiving of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us a posture not just to receive, but to receive with intention to be transformed. Lord, help us to lay aside the 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 self 
that gets in the way, the old patterns of our life, Lord, because you call us to be more than just receivers. You call us to be doers. And in order to be doers of your word, Lord, we have to allow the word to transform us so that we can go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching those disciples to obey all that you've commanded. So, Lord, we, we have your word. We, we invite you and ask, Lord, humbly but boldly in the name of Jesus that you would speak through your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to be willing to be transformed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, in this series of Judges, we, you know, if... We've been in it for a while now, and we, we spent a lot of time in Gideon's story. I think there was like five weeks of Gideon uh, alone. Uh, but we've been in the lesson, lessons from Judges for quite some time, and we, we've been discovering a pattern or a cycle that has been taking place that we've been observing through Judges. And it kind of looks like this. This is the graphic that I continue to use. And, and we, we learned that uh, you know, Israel had sinned. They, they had fallen away from from the Lord, and God raised up Midianites to be oppressors. Uh, the Israelites cried out for help, and God raises Gideon and an army of 300 men to bring salvation or to rescue the people of Israel from Midian. And that's what we've been unpacking through the story of Gideon so far, but here we're, we're actually going to back up to some of the verses we covered last week. So we're going to be in chapter 8, the very ending of chapter 8, uh, starting in verse Uh, 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. You see that Gideon was, was victorious, and he brings this salvation period of 40 years, 40 years of peace to the Israelites, of rest, it says, right? And then, um, We see here, if we continue reading in verse 29, that Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah, of the Abyssalites. Here in these verses, we see a glimpse of what those 40 years look like for Gideon. We see that Gideon lived in his own house, right? So he wasn't living with his father anymore. He had his own place and his own large, quite large family. We see that he lived in his own house. We, we see that he has many wives and one concubine. A concubine would be uh, higher than a slave, but lower than a wife. Uh, from a status standpoint, okay? Uh, in that culture, um, the concubines would be specifically for many reasons, but one of the many reasons, one of the, one of the main reasons that a person would have a concubine would be to raise up men to work in the field. Because remember, this was an agricultural society, so their wealth came by being able to produce crops and if you're going to be wealthy and produce lots of crops and take care of cattle and all those things, you have to have workers. And so you had a large family to do so. It should be noted that concubines in Scripture uh, have rights. They were not slaves. We see that Gideon has many wives. 
and one concubine. And as a result, he has 70 sons. And who knows how many daughters. But he has 70 sons. I have two. That's enough. <laughs> Two's enough. 70. I, I, uh, that'll, that'll make you grow, grow gray and bald quickly. But he has 70 sons. All of this reveals how wealthy Gideon becomes. All right, God raised up Gideon to, to, to rescue Israel. He does so. Um, and as a result, he ends up living this very wealthy lifestyle. He lives in his own house. That, that would have been unique in that time. Gideon would have lived in the household of his father um, until the father passed away. But here it says that he lived in his own house. That's a sign of wealth. He had many wives and one concubine with 70 sons. That's also a sign of wealth because by law, if you have wives, you have to be able to provide for them. You have to take care of them. And so there were rights that the wives and the concubine had to have and, and Gideon had to provide for them financially and take care of them. And you have to have money to do that. And obviously the, the 70 sons would help to secure that income and that, and that wealth. So this is what Gideon's life, the end of his life, looked like in this 40 years of rest. And then we're introduced to Abimelech here. We don't get any of the other names right yet. We don't get any of the names of the other 70 sons. But we are specifically given the name of Abimelech, who is the son of the concubine in Shechem. Which leads to this, what's in a name? We're going to get here. I, I remember, you know, and maybe this was true for some of you when you had children. Like, Amy and I, I remember when we were first expecting our, our, our firstborn. Right, we were pretty young and maybe stupid at the time. But we were expecting our first, firstborn and we were excited. We were very, very excited. And one of the things that new parents do is they'll get this book that's about you know, four inches thick, right? And it's got a bunch of baby names in it, right? It's got a bunch of baby names, like a thousand baby names in it, right? And, and so we got one of this. We were young. We were, you know, we were in our young 20s uh, when our first came along. And it was full of baby names. And I thought that this book was really, really cool. I thought it was cool for several reasons, not just because it had all of these names in it and all of these different variations, but it also gave you some cultural context of what the names meant and where they came from, whether they were English, whether they were German, whether they were Scottish, whatever, with the, the heritage of their name, right? Uh, and, and it was really, really cool what the names meant. And in our culture, I still think that, that today, parents, when they're naming babies, do choose to name their children for those purposes, for what the names mean. Other parents might just say, I like that name, and so I'm going to name the child that, right? So there's many, many reasons why we name our children. But in ancient times, parents named their children and gave their children's specific names with purpose beyond simply identification, All right? So the name meant something. It, it revealed something uh, about that child. And names are important. And here, we're specifically introduced to one of Gideon's sons, 
specifically the one from his concubine named Abimelech, which means my father is king. In the original language, Abimelech's name meant literally my father is king. Now, what do we remember from last week? The, the Israelites, after, after Gideon had conquered Midian and, and, and wiped the floor with them, and they were toast. The Israelites are like, we want you and your son and your grandsons forever to be king. And Gideon says, there is no king but God. And yet, we see him name Abimelech, a name that means my father is king. This is important because we're going to unpack this story of Abimelech, and names can sometimes be prophetic. So who is Abimelech? Well, let's continue to read in verses 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he has done. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Here in the, in the passages that we've read this morning, we, we learn that Abimelech is one of Gideon's 70 sons. He's one of the 70. He's counted in that number. Even though he's the son of a concubine, he would gain that status of a son. We see that he was born in Shechem, as already noted, he was born to a concubine, which means that uh, he did have a status. He did have comforts as being one of Gideon's sons. Right? He did benefit from being Gideon's own son, flesh and blood, to some degree. However, because he was not born to a wife, he would not be in line for any kind of inheritance. And this kind of sets the stage for what we're going to read about with Abimelech whose name means, my father is king. We see, which we just read, that uh, after this 40-year period of rest and after uh, Gideon passes away, Israel quickly, almost immediately, turns away from the Lord again. This is apostasy. That's what apostasy means, is to turn away, to go away from, to leave behind We see that Gideon dies and Israel falls into this apostate state. And every time, it's like, oh, just rips your heart out every time. Every time. And here it happens again. We see that as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turn again and whored after the Baals, and made Baal Berith their god. This is apostasy, people. The, turning away and whoring after other gods, low G. 
right? That is apostasy. We see that the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh, their God. And I think the part that stood out to me for what we're getting ready to read with Abimelech, they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. There's a word in this, in this uh, paragraph here called steadfast love. Some translations might say it's, um, let's see, loving kindness. They did not show loving kindness to the family of Jerubbabel. This word, steadfast love, comes from the Hebrew word hesed or chesed. We've, we've brought this up a couple weeks back in, in our study, but this word hesed uh, in Hebrew is steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, goodness. It's, it's the Hebrew word equivalent uh, for love. And so we could read that in to the, to the text here that they, they did not uh, show steadfast love. They did not show loving kindness. They did not show mercy. They did not show goodness to the family of Gideon after Gideon passed away. We need to know that, that unlike the world today and unlike the culture today that, that uses love in a multitude of ways, this is not a romantic love. Hesed is not romantic. It's not an infatuation. It's not, it's not that. It's not a feeling even. That Hesed is reliable, faithful, and loyal. Something you celebrate after 50 years of marriage or longer. That's an example of what Hesed might look like. That steadfastness, that loving kindness, that, that goodness. It's not a feeling. It's not infatuation. It's reliable, faithful, and loyal. It's an unfailing love toward another. But what we need to know is that it's love in action. If it's not a feeling, it's got to be something we do. And so Hesed is love in action. There's a quote here I'd like to share with you uh, from Dr. Will Kynes. He, he puts it this way. He says, Hesed is never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill, but always entails practical action on behalf of another. That's Hesed. You might say, well, well Pastor, why are we focusing on, on this right now? Well, we see that Gideon's family lost favor with Israel. We see that after he dies, Israel turns their back on the family. We see specifically that they no longer are showing this hesed love for Gideon's family. The 70 sons and however many daughters and all of the wives and the concubine. No longer are they in favor with Israel. They're no longer receiving this unfailing love, this actionable love. And this includes Abimelech, who, if you remember, as we just recently touched on, is the son of a concubine who was receiving benefit as being part of the family. He was receiving, the, as part of Gideon's sons, he was receiving some level of, of gain. 
even though he knew there was no inheritance in line, he still had a good lifestyle. He was making out. But as soon as Gideon dies and Israel leaves the family alone and, and actually turns away from the family and God, Abimelech is left there with nothing to show for it. Sounds similar to the story of Cinderella. Dad dies, and now Cinderella's stuck with an evil stepmom and stepsisters and goes from having a bright future to being a slave. It's not quite that drastic for Abimelech, but that's... All metaphors fall short, I get it. But that's kind of what Abimelech is going through. He knows. He knows that because of his, uh, you know, his mother and the status of his mother, that he has no right to claim anything from the family of Gideon. And that's where everything starts to take a turn. See, because Gideon's family lost favor with Israel, and Israel uh, no longer was giving the Gideon family this hesed love, it impacted Abimelech's life. It threatened his comfort. It threatened his lifestyle. It threatened his social status, if you will. And whatever benefit that was there is now gone. And so Abimelech decides that he is going to take matters into his own hands. And that's where we pick up here. In chapter 9. We'll start at verse 1 again. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men uh, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. That's hard to read. It's hard, it's hard to see Abimelech mass murder his family. All of the sons, minus himself and Jotham, are dead. These are evil plans that Abimelech lays. We see that he visits his mother and raises support from his mother's side of the family in Shechem. Shechem is located in the hills of Ephraim. Right? These are the same people that, uh, that Gideon sent word to. Say, hey, the princes are coming your way. The Midianites are coming your way. Go out and, and cut them off. And they got all bent out of shape for not being included in the first place. Remember last week? We read this and we, we, we were going through this. 
These are the same people. And so he, uh, Abimelech goes back to his people in Ephraim and, and Shechem specifically, and he raises support from his mother's side. Well, dad's dead, and all the support and all the benefits I was going to get from, from claiming Gideon, no longer there. So now I'm going to go to my, mom, my mom's side and, and raise up support there. He asks them, which is better for you? He asks the leaders of the town, what is better for you? That all 70 sons of Gideon rule over you, or that just one rules over you? Which one's better for you? Which is better for you? Remember, Gideon was raised as a judge for Israel. And Abimelech goes, what is better for you, Shechemites? What is better for you guys? That all 70 of us, Gideon, sons of Gideon, rule over you? Or that just one? And by the way, let me remind you that I'm actually your flesh and bone because my mom's from you guys. You see the ploy, the evil mindset that Abimelech is using. This is revealing of the apostasy, the state of apostasy that Israel was in at the time. We already knew that they had turned away from God and, and that they had uh, left Yahweh behind and, and whored after the Baals, the, the lowercase g gods. But this conversation, this, this, this which is better for you, for the 70 sons to rule over you or for one to rule over you, implying king. Remember that Abimelech's name is, my father is king. And so Abimelech might have felt self-righteous in the, in the say to say, well, my father named me, my father is king. He's now dead, so obviously I must be king. This is the apostate mind. There is no king except for God. Gideon said so himself. And Shechem's approval of of Abimelech becoming king is further evidence of where they're at in their apostasy. We also see that, that the leaders, they, they're like, yeah, that actually sounds pretty good for us. It actually sounds pretty good for us to have just one and not 70. Like, that, could be some, that could be some crazy kingdom to have 70 kings over us. So yeah, we like the idea of one. And, and so they go to the house of Baal Barith, which the house there is the same thing as a temple. So this is a temple of a pagan god that they get money from. Money that had been given to a pagan god. Baal Barith. They pull that money out. And they say, here, take these 70 silver coins and, and you know, do what you need to. And Abimelech takes that money that was given to this Baal. And, and Baal Barith means Baal of the Covenant. Let that sink in for you. Baal of the Covenant. There's only one God of the Covenant. His name is Yahweh. And so the people of Israel named their shrine, they named their lowercase g God Baal of the Covenant. God of the Covenant. That would be like a slap in the face for Yahweh who's the only one that keeps covenants. 
This is how far Israel has fallen in just such a short time. And so they, they take money out of this Bale of the Covenant's treasure box, if you will, enough really to buy a small army. And Abimelech takes that money and he goes and hires worthless and reckless fellows. This, this word worthless would be vain. Reckless would be insolent, arrogant, lack of respect. Friends, these, these were not good men. These would be what we would call mercenaries. Hired hitmen that Abimelech goes and hires. And then he takes this small army to his father, Gideon's house, and he slaughters all of his brothers on one stone, which implies that they were probably most likely, sorry for the gruesomeness, most likely beheaded at this one stone, all except for Jotham, the youngest, who hides himself and is able to escape. See, Abimelech was focused. We, we, we see this awful, evil turn of events with Abimelech. But when we zoom out and we really try to understand what God is trying to show us here, Abimelech was certainly focused on himself. See, Abimelech had, had lost all that he once had. He had lost all the glory, all, all of the fame, all of the status, all of the benefits from being part of the house of Gideon. And when Gideon dies, he loses all of that. And in response, he says, I'm going to do something about that because all I care about is number one. All I care about is getting it back. He didn't care about anything else. He wanted things his way. He wanted to be the one in power. He wanted to rule Israel, even if it meant borrowing from the devil himself. There is an application in here. When we seek to gratify man, we fail to glorify God. I missed this because I sped through my notes. This goes back to that question that he poses to the Shechem's. Which one is better for you? He makes an appeal to the men to please them and himself, really, for that matter. He says, when we seek to gratify, to please, to, to appease man, we often fail to glorify God. There we go. Catching up here. So he hires those worthless, vain, reckless mercenaries and slaughters all of his brothers. And we see after he slaughters all of these brothers and he gets all of the line of Gideon out of the way, so he thinks, the leaders of Shechem make him king by the yoke of the pillar at Shechem. Some translations might say the terebinth there. Remember that terebinth is specifically or uh, literally an oak, a mighty tree. Uh, and so sometimes it's translated oak, sometimes it's translated terebinth, sometimes it's a uh, mighty tree. Uh, all are the same. But we see that the leaders in Shechem make him king at this oak. 
This is actually a reference to Joshua 24, 19 to 27. So if you will, just turn back in your Bibles a few pages to Joshua chapter 24. read along with me. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord, Yahweh, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord, Yahweh, our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Terebinth there, again, being oak. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Where the leaders make Abimelech king is the same very place that these statutes would have been posted. Now, let that sink in. This, these statutes were made to be a witness to the claim that Israel was making that they would serve God and God alone. And sometime later, those same Israelites in Shechem ignore that and say, we want Abimelech to be our king. This is apostasy. We as the church must always be on guard against the number one temptation to all mankind, me, myself, and I. We see this very clearly in Abimelech's life. He was out for numero uno, number one, himself. All he cared about was his comfort and his lifestyle and his power. And he made sure that that's what he was going to have. And the reality is, that that is the nature of our fallen nature, our old selves that, that, that we have to wrestle with on a regular basis is to put me, myself, and I first. All mankind wrestles with this. And so we have to, must be on guard against the temptation to fall into the me, myself, and I thinking. And as followers of Christ and members of his church, we must learn to love one another with hesed love, with an actionable love, with a putting others first kind of love. This isn't 
feelings. This isn't infatuation. This is practical surrendering our desires to the other person. Loving another person in action. That's who God calls us to be. Otherwise, we see some pretty severe fruit of what it looks like not to. Would you pray with me as we close? Next week, we'll get into more. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the honor and privilege to worship you through song and giving and prayer and koinonia and, and through the teaching and preaching and receiving of your word. Lord, I pray that you would continue to transform us as your people, as your bride, as your church. I pray, Lord, that anyone that, that, that needs a moment of surrender, Lord, that they would respond to your Holy Spirit even now. Pray that you would continue to bring us closer to one another, to, to teach us and show us and, and uh, allow us to show this hesed, this steadfast love for one another, this loving kindness of which we, we sang in, in one of our songs. Lord, that, that only comes from you. It's, it is who you are, but we, we are called to model our lives after you. And so, Lord, we, we realize that if we're dealing with me, myself, and I, I can't do this. I can't love another this way, this way. So Lord, we need you. We need you to rip that out, to, to, to rip the, the me, myself, and I away from us so that we can fully surrender to you and to your leading. Help us, Lord, in that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? I'm going to read from Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all who agree, say, Amen. Amen. God bless you.